Well, hello. Hi. Yes, we're here. We're back. We are back. We missed a week, but we're we're back. This is the Venice Voice Podcast. On this episode, we go on location to an empty building, which was formerly occupied by a little company that was founded here in Venice. I think you've heard of it. It's called Snapchat, and the building is owned by today's guest, Jack H. Jack has been a resident and has been in the real estate business in this neighborhood since the mid-1980s. And because of his connections with the community and his deep ties with uh, Fellowship of Recovery here in Los Angeles, he has asked to remain anonymous. He's a pretty well-known guy, so if you know who he is, that's fine. And if you don't know, well, I guess that's fine, too. We talk about many things, including the rich history of the block that he now lives on, uh, the state of real estate development here in Los Angeles, what he thinks about the rent control issue, and we also talk about the homelessness problem here in Venice and discuss some of the solutions that he think might work. But first, just a quick announcement. I have begun production on my next play, Fool for Love by Sam Shepard, which will open on January 10th at my beloved theater company, the Pacific Resident Theater here in Venice. I'll keep you updated on that in the next couple months, and hope you can come and check it out. Now, without further ado, here's Jack H. So I'm here with Jack. How you doing, Jack? Well, man. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for doing this. Absolutely. I really appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate the old concept that you have of putting people together in ways that they wouldn't otherwise find or have a chance to know each other and I've always found that to be sort of one of the discriminating characteristics of Venice is that I used to refer to people as I still do discrete exhibitionists in Venice they're they're very uh, mind their own business normally because they're productive and have business to mind and yet are not overly enthusiastic about trying to figure out who everybody else is but we end up knowing each other by face or by their time of walked in the morning or seeing them in some way and know they belong, nod to one another, and basically continue to mind our day. Yeah, it's a great community. It yeah, really is. It's, it's had that vibe for a long time, and thank yeah. goodness it's, it's maintained it. I agree. Yeah. Um, we're on location here today. Normally I do this in my studio. I, I really appreciate you inviting me into your place. Uh, I mean, this used to be a former artist studio, and, and it's also like a former office of a fairly decent company that was invented around here. Yeah, yeah it's kind of cool being in this place. And, and we're right here on Market Street, which has a lot of history. You've lived here for a long time. Yes. Um, you've seen a lot of people come and go. Um, the last time we spoke, we talked about a lot of the artists that have had yeah. galleries here. Um, people that you've seen come and go. Um, just remind me and, and our listeners of, of some of the people that you've seen around here. <clears throat> well, the building we're in now, I know that uh, Larry Bell was in, owned it at one time. He worked with and met with Donald Judd, who stayed with him, when he made the decision to buy the property he bought in Marfa that's become what Marfa is today. Uh, I remember Robert Rauschenberg having an opening in here with uh, Bobby Greenfield, who was an art dealer. Uh, Michael Heiser did a, an installation in this building, and Michael Heiser's the guy that put the huge rock at LACMA recently and took that thing from Riverside on a three-week caravan on this huge truck through communities and all that, which was amazing to see because every place they stopped, they had festivities and music and tacos and whatever, and they that trick was that trek was really interesting because that 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 the trailer that held the rock had 140 some tires on it. It was that long and big, and they traveled. Well, in this building, he suspended a rock by putting steel columns in the walls to make it look like it was floating off of the walls. And it was a big stone that today lives in the front yard of Roy and Carol Domaney's house on the Marina Peninsula that was designed by Bob Graham. Uh, Robert Irwin did a a scrim on this building before it was redone uh, that allowed the light to pass through the skylights and had this vague haunting image that people passed and then they photographed the people throughout the day as they came and stopped and sat in front of it and smoked joints and drank beers and did whatever (laughs) they did when that happened and uh, I mean it's it's like the whole block it was owned by a silent film star in the early 1900s Uh, it's next door to 72 Market Street which was one of the pinnacle seminal architectural restaurants that sort of has become the trend today and that happened back in the early 80s 
Tony Bills across the street who brought the film business to Venice when everybody thought he was out of his mind, but he knew if he stayed on the studio lots, he'd be out of his mind and, you know, decided to come down here. And I've always found the people that come here tend to be a bit rogue and very independent in what they want to do, and they don't need anyone else's opinion to agree with them because they're clear enough to take that step. And so... Do you consider yourself one of those people? <clears throat> you know, I kind of felt like... I told my dad when I got down here that I probably wouldn't have robbed all the neighbors' houses if I had lived in Venice because I didn't know that you could be subversive and productive. I thought it always had to come with a, a you know, demolition derby. And uh, I think he appreciated that. <laughs> but he, he was the only one when I decided to come here out of all the people that I knew, and I was 30 when I came, uh, that said he thought I was onto something. Like he could see that I had some sense of where I was going and what I wanted to do. And everyone else told me I was crazy. And it was the first time in my life I really had an experience of recognizing that when everyone else thinks I'm crazy, I'm probably on the right track because if it took me as long as it did to get to that point, why would anybody else understand it? And it, unless it was conventional. And in a way, this was sort of a break with my history. I grew up in the Valley. I lived in the Valley. I had kids and was married in the Valley and lived in West Hollywood before I came here. And I liked the West Side. I used to come over here a lot when I was a kid. I came to Venice Beach in 1968 the first time and sat on the shore while my friend surfed because it sucked. It was windy and cold and cloudy. <laughs> but I saw this little city sitting at the edge and it was just amazing to me because there aren't a lot of... On the West Coast, there aren't a lot of cities sitting on the shore like Venice. Yeah. that just appear that way. The beaches I'd been to were more in Malibu and Santa Monica, and they were basically homes and um, much less dense, more open, sandy beaches. Sereno, I remember going to as a kid and body surfing. So Venice, was, Venice stood out for me, and I came back 10 years later when the roller skating craze started and spent my first night at the Irwin Hotel, which was not the Irwin then, and uh, with my then wife, who was pregnant with our first daughter. So... I just saw a documentary recently about the roller skating craze back in the day. There's some great yeah. footage of those guys. And it was a massive thing. Oh, it was, thing. It, it it was started like, an international trend. Yeah. Nobody sold roller skates since the roller derbies of the probably 50s. Yeah, that was amazing. And I always imagine what Venice must have been like when it was a standalone little community out here on the water and there was nothing from here to Sunset Boulevard except for marshland. I, it was um, just the way that it was... In the inception of this idea of putting this little seaside recreational area it was just it was just very fascinating. I just can't imagine what it must have been like to have the train go from here downtown and like up what is now Venice Boulevard. Um, it's just it's just so cool to have that kind of history around here, and it still seems to emanate from the ground. Well, and the red car is a great example of how brilliance can often fade. And when we needed the train, it was here. And now that we really need it, it's not. Right. And so all of those rights of ways and all of that space has slowly been gobbled up and sold off and sort of prevented from really serving that purpose. And it clearly was necessary for Venice's inception, you know, to have a, a, a rail system that allowed people to get here because it was a long way away. When I got down here, I had never done... I'd owned some homes in the valley and had lost everything by the time I was... I had four or five homes by the time I was 25 and was had zero at 26 and was deep in debt and... In a business, I, I, it just wasn't, it was a lot of hype and hustle and a lot of, uh, you know, American dream turned nightmare kind of uh, thing that just didn't suit me anymore. And I, I, I couldn't do anything. I just couldn't function and really fell completely apart. And when I got down here, I was deep in debt. I hadn't filed taxes in years. I was smoking pot every day to, you know, mask the pain and the anxiety that I was in. But I had two daughters and I was going to be responsible for them. So I decided to get into real estate and um, it became fascinating to see the architecture and design that was going on. I was also in business school at the time trying to eke that out. Uh, and everything they taught me was exactly the opposite of what was happening down here. So I said, you know what, I'm going to quit and I'm just going to work and I'm going to focus and I'm going to learn what's going on down there. People were building incredible homes in neighborhoods that people would never build incredible homes in here just because they wanted to do something well for themselves. And it was really impressive to me to see people come from all over and settle in and hire name brand architects and do that kind of work, you know. 
You told me in one of our previous conversations about how you really got your break in real estate. I think somebody gave you a list of names or something, and that was how you were able to make well, your initial contacts, or how did it all start? There, you know, my interest was in the community, and I got sober in my first year or so of being down here, which meant that I started seeing things a little differently and started accepting responsibility for my part in my life and my predicament and situation, and it meant accepting all responsibility. But I'd seen Venice as a place that had so much potential but was hamstrung with violence and crime and filth and sort of neglect, and I never quite understood that. Um, I don't today, but I recognize that historically it was an abandoned community that at one time thrived and had a gap where the city of Los Angeles took it over, and I don't think the city's ever really understood that Venice has never really been taken over by Venice by LA, they've just basically been turned over street services, fire and police, and those sorts of things to the city. The actual character of Venice has always remained independent and rogue and um, free. But those other things were sort of curious to me, so I decided to get active in the community and met some people, and a lot of them were artists. We had a, a group called the Venice Action Committee that was for a cleaner, safer, more beautiful Venice, and we obviously failed. <laughs> but I think in certain ways we made an impact on the community in general to see that people could come together and there, was a, there were a lot more like-minded people, like I do suspect there are today, who are interested in seeing the potential of Venice realized in a peaceful, harmonious, collective manner rather than sit back and watch it degrade and be degrading to the people who are in it. And I mean all the people, including the people on the street and the people who are troubled for whatever reason they, they uh, has caused them that trouble. So I think that the, um, the viewpoint then is the same viewpoint now. I think that the, uh, the, the average person in Venice, in my estimation, is productive enough to have something to do and doesn't have all day to sit in meetings arguing and being hysterical. So a lot of times the people that end up in those meetings have more time than sense and end up basically just raising voices over issues that are not thought through well and kind of neutralize people's interest in wanting to participate. Sort of drives apathy and, and sort of throw your arms up and say, you know what, I'm just going to take care of myself and my own little property. So you have this very quiet majority in my estimation that's um, the potential for them being unleashed is great in, sense, in the sense that as they see productive results happen, I suspect more would be interested in getting involved. And by getting involved, it wouldn't mean completely having to undermine their life, but beginning to participate at a level that's agreeable enough that they can do it consistently rather than simply dive in, get swamped, and end up unable to continue. Yes, some of that was emblematic of the meeting that they had last week at Westminster School regarding the Metro lot. Um, and whether or not they're going to put bridge housing there for um, the folks that are living on the street right now and whether or not they're going to use that lot. There was a, it was a, quite a contentious meeting, and there was a lot of what you just described. Um, it didn't seem like there was a lot of consensus there. and there was, not, there was people that had come together, and there was a lot of people who were willing to participate, but nobody could really agree on how to do it. One thing that was quite clear was that the residents around here do not want that lot used for bridge housing. They, there's apparently a bunch of other lots that are available in more industrial areas within District 11 in Los Angeles, and people want to move those folks and their bridge housing into those more um, industrial areas so it doesn't have such an impact on the community. I know that we've had these discussions before and you had some interesting ideas, I thought, about how we might help facilitate um, helping those folks that are currently living on the streets. Um, what do you think about the Metro lot and, and, and what do you, how do you see um, maybe helping, quote, bridge these folks to getting off the street? You know, it seems to me that it's unfortunate we're at a point where even potentially good ideas can't be looked at squarely because they're being pushed by, um, you know, the city has been very good at using Venice to take big steps. You know, they're, they're excellent at, when it comes to serving the interest of Venice, and this has gone on for decades. I think they've gotten much better. I think Mon Mike Bonnet has done a great job of starting to address some of these things. But every one of the successive council people has walked into a watershed of neglect and decay and 
people who have lived with it for decades and then are asked to immediately have confidence in some grand scheme that very likely will end up causing consequences that are very, very similar and predictable based on history. Um, and I think the bus yard is one of those things. It's very difficult to think that the same group who has allowed it to get as far as it has is going to somehow come up with a solution that's just going to simply magically take care of it. The, 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 the public display of, the public claim of being able to say, yes, we've made this grand attempt here is one thing. But the neighbors who are living there 24 hours a day are the ones that tend to bear the burden of any of the shortfall and the, any of the lack of planning that's really been built into it. So I think the community has more than enough history to deserve their concern and own it. And I think the city is obviously up against a wall that they need to climb. And they've built that wall. They built it through neglect and, and ignorance and just ignoring what's been going on and thinking somehow it would get better. I don't understand what the last 10 years has meant. Um, I think we're fostering the dereliction of people rather than helping them by not enforcing things that could easily begin to instigate people's uh, own awareness that they may have a problem. When you let them get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse on the street and they're subjected to the kind of abuse, most of the people, it isn't the cities that's their problem, it's other people on the street, many of whom are violent and criminals and not interested in the well-being of those other people. And when those people are left on the street around them on a regular basis, they are beaten up and robbed and they are constantly... So those, are, those are the things that you think need enforcement. Well, I think it's a two. I think it's two prong. I think to allow laws that are on the books, like sleeping past six and sleeping before nine, we have people down here camping twenty-four hours a day. We have and rampant, those, yeah, rampant enforcing bike theft. those laws would would go a long way. Well, it would at least begin to take a little bit of the assurance that people who have already fallen as far down as they can go, away from them thinking that they actually own and run and control what's going on down here. And it subjected the neighbors to theft and violence and assaults. And I mean, it, it goes on and on and on. Anybody down here, there was a meeting with the guy at Westminster School who was the head of Lawson. The neighbors, the, the mothers from Westminster Elementary, Broadway Elementary were really concerned about turning the Westminster Center into a storage shelter for homeless because they were already being plagued by guys who were saying things, sexually assaulting them and their kids on their way to school and they didn't want any more. And the guy from Lhasa said, well, if you have all these complaints and they're so unanimous, why don't you just call the police? And everybody laughed in the room, the mothers included. Because historically, we haven't gotten the kind of, we not only have a community that's at risk, we have millions of tourists on top of it who come in here who take for granted by the look of things that nobody cares so they can do whatever they want. So we're subjected not only to that, but we're hosting, the, it's like we're hosting the Olympics 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Millions of people are coming in here and we're not getting the kind of support we need to actually do that. So if you completely take enforcement away, it just lets things degrade further. And I don't think that's good for any of the people on the street. I think some accountability where there's none actually helps get people's attention and starts to narrow the ideas that continue to get worse if they're not addressed. And I'm not talking about brutalizing people either. I'm talking about just simply starting to create a little bit of accountability. So people get better when they're accountable, when they're responsible. They don't get worse. People get worse when they're not held to account. And if they're on their own getting worse, which is apparently what's happening on the street, then something is wrong in the system. But the other end of it, in my estimation, is that our whole community, I don't think it's going to be solved by the government. I don't think the problem is going to be solved by the government in any of the, these cities. I think there's a lack of community participation and awareness that it's our responsibility to begin to interact with people on a level that's commensurate with them getting better rather than simply turn our backs on them and ignore them and pretend that they don't even exist when we walk past them. And I think one of the ways to do that is to harness the sober community is one, one way and others interested in helping them understand how to approach people on the street and simply begin to say hello as they pass them during the day and simply begin to treat them like equal humans, like the equal humans they are, rather than this other plague that's been hoisted on us that we need to just see disappear. I don't think that thinking is wise, and I think it's been, I think it's gone on so long that we have the problem at the level it does, because problems not addressed don't get better on their own. Yeah. Problems aren't self-correcting. Selves solve problems. And so to a degree, we maintain it by doing what we're doing. And I don't think, I don't think it's compassionate, I don't think it's considerate, and I don't think it's 
it's justified for people who are typically concerned about other humans. And if they're not, then they can see the source of the problem as being the neglect and the ignorance of not making believe that somehow these people count and matter. That makes a lot of sense. Reaching out and being compassionate to other human beings on a, on a, a personal level and approaching it as if we care about their well-being rather than just picking them up and moving them as if they were trash or whatever. You know, like we should hide them. Yeah, exactly. Or find a place to put them where they won't be seen, kind of like a, uh, uh, you know, like a like waste dump. we're going to keep them secret. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like that's not going to happen. As a person that's been in real estate for a long time, you know a lot of developers. Um, you had this one idea that when we talked before about this more of allowing developers to have less restraint so that they can put more units into circulation um, because we need a million units in California to right. house people and, and there are so many ideas out there on how to do that. There was one proposal where we're just going to build buildings and give people apartments and you know pay for them with taxpayer money. Nobody's going to be able to make money off of it. It's not really sustainable. It's going to cost a lot of money. And there was a different idea that you alluded to the last time we spoke was more of a dormitory type of thing. What do you think is the best way forward to make it uh, to incent developers, um, like a Section 8 housing type of thing. I know that there's some guys that are into Section 8 development now because they're able to make some sort of um, rational profit off of it. Um, what do you think is the best way forward to actually put people in housing? To start with, I can say that one of the worst ways forward is to have a, an entitlement process that is so complicated and so unpredictable and so impossible to have any kind of assurance of that most people don't even bother. And that's one of the costs of doing housing in Los Angeles. It's one of the most cumbersome, lengthy, completely unconstrained processes that I've ever been through whenever I decide to do anything. And I see a lot of other people suffer from that. The other side of it is that it seems like there's a whole contingent of people that have gotten very, very vocal and active who like the way they found where they moved and aren't interested in having anyone else share it with them. They want to maintain the community the way they thought of it when they first found it. And some of those people are now 20, 30 years into the community like I am, and they'd like it to be what it was when they found it rather than what it could be. Population's grown a lot in 20 or 30 years. If people in general are not considering that, my sense is it's irresponsible on a social level to think in those ways, because it's really saying, I got here first, it's like three-year-old conversation, five-year-old kindergarten conversation. I got here first and you can't come. And then those same people very often take on the crusade of opposing development. So the opposition, the people who have claimed in Venice that they would rather see more of what they found when they got here, which was cheaper housing, because there was a point housing down here was very cheap. But ironically, when it was very cheap, not everybody could afford it because everything that's cheap is cheap for a reason. Every, every market has a market rate because it's what, is, it's what the cost would bear at the moment. So to look back every 30 years and say, oh, well, it was so cheap then, that's what we should restore it to, is really making believe that something that can't happen should. And it's a little crazy, not a little bit. I think it's been one of the major uh, causes. In Venice, we've had a lot of people clamor for low-income housing. So the low-income housing that could have been built was not built because the developers ran into such headwinds that it just made it impossible. And we probably lost, I'd say, 100 units that I can think of, of people who would have otherwise built six units here, four units there, two units here, that got so much flack from the community, they just went away. And what happens? Somebody builds a home on that lot or two units, where three or four or five might have been built. Uh, one on Main Street recently could have been built, and I forget exactly how many units it was, but it seemed to me it was five or six or eight low-income units, and he got slapped down. My sense is that we don't need subsidy. What we need is height and density. And the other side of that is that down here in Venice, where lots are 30 by 90, the most common lot in most of the neighborhoods in Venice is 30 by 90 feet as you get near the beach. That's incredibly small. The, the standard lot in Los Angeles is 50 by 150. 30 by 90 foot lot in 1905 was tiny. This community was built to be dense. It was designed that way. There weren't as many cars, there weren't as many people, but it was designed to be that way, and that's the way it should be. It was designed, though, with transportation in mind. And we have 30-unit buildings sitting on one or two of those 20 and 30 unit buildings sitting on one or two of those lots down by the beach with no parking at all. That's our affordable housing. 
That's the way you encourage people to build and begin to use the height. We seem to be able to build tall downtown and on Wilshire Corridor, it seems to be non-existent anywhere else. And that to me is, something's wrong. I think we should have enterprise zones where people are allowed the density and dormitories for people who don't go to college. Why do we presume kids going to college need a dormitory that's cheap and forget about all the kids who aren't or the people who through their life, through divorce, bankruptcy, spending time in jail, whatever, come out and they got nowhere to go. They've got to, they've got to immediately meet the market at full market rate or they can't survive. And that to me is just poor planning and poor insight. The communities may resist it, but for the communities to resist it, they're actually creating the problem they end up wanting to eliminate. And it's a false claim to pretend that you want to eliminate something while you're instrumental in, in creating it. And I think the politicians in that regard are really hamstrung because these are their voters. When, they, when the hysteria hits the newspaper, it looks like they're not doing their job, so they'd rather not hear it. And to me, that's the, the, the disempowering aspect of a democratic community, when people start to act in ways that really are exactly the opposite of what they're claiming. People down here who fought for more low-income housing have actually been responsible in large part for the higher cost of housing and the actual depletion of housing in Venice. We have less units in Venice than we did five or ten years ago. I forget the exact number, but the numbers have dropped because people just say, fuck it, I'll build a house. Yeah, we want, we want low-income housing, but we want it to look a very specific way, and that way is not feasible. Well, part of it is a guy might offer two units, but the people in the community say, we want it all low-income. You can't do it. And if they really wanted it, that's what they should be doing, is subsidizing six-unit buildings that can't otherwise, that you couldn't otherwise afford to be built. There was one guy on, on the MTA lot, actually, who had, I think, 35 workforce housing units planned, and people argued that it should be a park. Same people that have argued for low-income housing argued that it should be a park. So I don't, you know, I don't get the rationale, but I don't think there is rationale when you end up, I, you know, I think the, the, the mental problem that seems to exist is people wanting to try to get what they can't have. And the hysteria that's built is built because it's impossible. They're never going to get it. So they end up being irrational and crazy. I mean, I go to those meetings and most people down here with any sense do not want to subject themselves to catcalls and boos like they're in a, you know, high school presidential runoff. And uh, they just don't want to be a part of that because it's silly and it's unproductive. And so our brain trust in Venice, which is extraordinary, we have, the, we have the mental capacity in this community to solve these problems. There's no doubt. We just don't have the interest in participating at that level. And I totally understand it. I mean, I've had to have gaps in my efforts at times and just sort of step back and take a breath and uh, look at it from uh, a broader view. What I found in doing that often is that the commonality far outranks the division that tends to erupt in the hysteria that appears to be so divisive when in fact it's just silly. And uh, if I talk to the people who are in that vicinity of that hysteria trying to understand it and all that, their tendency is a lot greater to be similar to mine and others in the community that are that want to be productive and want to contribute and want to see things better for everybody then I find them to be extremists or uh, you know hysterical voices they tend to be very rational yeah the hysteria never is productive it really doesn't seem to go anywhere when you have shouting matches happening we saw a lot of that when they had the protest here when when Snapchat was moving in and they had the protests out here and there was people who were taking ownership of the streets and were up in arms about the fact that Snapchat was moving in and, you know, like, they created jobs. They created a very a very profitable company, put a lot of people to work, moved them down here, and, um, yeah, the rents went up, but that wasn't the only reason. It just seemed like there was a lot of hysteria there that was misplaced and I think that a lot of that same type of hysteria is being applied to these meetings that we're talking about, where people don't really fully understand why they're so upset. It seems like, though, they want the same things. Um, they want low-income housing. They want diversity. They want opportunity for everyone. But they just don't seem to uh, want the solutions that can actually work. Well, that would, that would be somebody who doesn't actually want it. And that would be a good definition of insanity. You know, to think that you're going to get what you can't get and spend your life trying is really just mental anguish. My sense is that living that life becomes so futile that people end up celebrating failure as a cause to make it appear 
that what they're doing is right <laughs> because their own failed conclusions, they're looking at companies who are successful down here and calling them out for being successful. That's a celebration of failure. And you see that the boardwalk does a lot of that. I mean, it celebrates, somebody steals a guitar and all of a sudden they're a musician. A guy steals a paintbrush and a can of paint and he's an artist, you know, and they're splashing stuff. We had a guy down here with cans of paint that would just throw them on buildings for a year. Hundreds of cans of paint on a year and called himself an artist. He was really a vandal. But uh, so there's a lot of that in an, in an environment that really allows people freedom, which Venice is. The concept of free-for-all is typically considered free for some, but not for all. And to me, that isn't free-for-all. That is wrong. That's, that's the twisted nature of words being uh, used backward. And it sort of shows that tendency of, I think I'm working in this direction, but I'm actually working against the direction I'm in. That's a pretty depressed state of condition. And my experience from my own drug addiction and alcoholism is that's exactly the condition I was in when I used to make believe that somehow or another I was going to solve my problem by doing the next worst thing rather than taking a minute to actually consider what I was doing and thawing out enough to become actually responsive to what was happening rather than reactive and protective and defensive and fear-based. Yeah. And that fear isn't real fear anyhow. It's, it's completely self-induced fear. Anxiety, stress, struggle, all that kind of mental gyration isn't real fear. Real fear is very clarifying and you know what to do. It's clear. You know, if the bear's there, you know you do not want to continue in the direction you're heading that got his attention. Yeah, it's very clear. Time stands still. It changes. You know, that other stuff is a grinding, depressing, daily, chronic, obsessive inability to really function. It starts to actually depress people to the point that the only thing they can think about doing is using drugs or alcohol or some other some other diversion. I mean, there's there's hundreds of 12-step programs for all the different ways people find to try and distract themselves from that inner voice, that inner argument that's going on. It's a fascinating description of fear. There seems to be so many uh, people who call themselves activists around here in Venice who are filled with hysteria. And it doesn't seem to be based in any kind of reality or any kind of real need or, or clear direction on how to solve problems. There's a number of people that I've, that I've met that were part of that demonstration and that have blogs and that have all kinds of voices that are around here that I, th I think seem to suffer what you just described, you know, that, that hysteria, that it's not really based in anything. If they, if they were really afraid, like you said, that they would have a, a clear direction to go and they would be willing to, to bridge that gap and really seek solutions. One of the things that I think that causes a lot of, of hysteria, especially right now with homeowners and people that I know in the neighborhood, is this idea of rent control. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's caused a lot of hysteria on both mm -hmm. sides. Um, what do you feel when you hear those, those words, rent control, and how do you think that that might impact the community if, uh, if cities have the ability to do that? Well, it discourages builders from building because if they can't predict that they can make a profit, they're not going to do it, and you end up with this. That's one of the reasons we have what we have. I mean, I think West Hollywood and Santa Monica were great examples of that. They had an incredibly stringent rent control, but if you drove down the alleys of the units that were still renting, you couldn't rent it beyond a certain amount. So people 30 years later were paying $400 a month, which was a steal on a $2,000 unit. But in the alley, if you drove down, you see all brand new cars, Saabs and mm -hmm. Porsches and all the fancy cars. So the wealth was there to pay the rent. It just wasn't going to the landlords. And when you do that, you really discourage and disrupt the system to find its way you know, and to find the sufficient number to satisfy the needs. And it creates a disruption. In New York, one of the, I remember in business school studying a story about the families who raised their kids in three-bedroom units, and the kids moved out, and they couldn't leave the units. So the new people who wanted the three bedrooms couldn't have them because mom and dad were still living in the empty three-bedroom units because there's no real, it, it creates a disruption to the flow of ability to really function. And to me, that's a backward idea. If you simply allow people to build in relationship to the demand, it will stop when there's no more demand because the prices will drop and they won't be able to afford to continue. That's a natural economic cycle. And having some understanding of economics would help people who are thinking they want to do something, but thinking they want to do it in the way they're thinking they want to do it rather than the way it can be done. Uh, and, you know, that's sort of unusual, and I don't think today is any less of an example. As a matter of fact, it seems to be getting greater, that people want to do what can't be done at a greater, greater level with louder voices and more hysteria, thinking that somehow or another the emotional case is logical and r rational, and it doesn't ever seem to really be. So, yeah. 
I also really enjoyed our conversation the last time we spoke about how what happens in Venice seems to be a little bit of a microcosm for Los Angeles, and Los Angeles is kind of a microcosm for California and for the rest of the United States. There's a lot of forward-thinking people, and you alluded to the fact that the brain power exists, the intellect exists here to solve many of the problems that we have. So if you could just briefly describe what you think are those major impediments to getting those things solved. How, how do we bridge people? There was some interesting ideas that I think you alluded to the last time we spoke, but if you could just describe for us what you think might work as far as you talked about the dormitory idea, but also with um, the wealth disparity, or, or what are some of the main things that you think that we could use this intellect and brain power for to help solve, and, and right here in our community that might permeate out to the rest of the state and the rest of the country? Well, LA to me is one of the great just becoming realized cities in the world because it was the Wild West. And Abbott Kinney came to Venice because he wanted to tame the Wild West. He saw it as a place that was wild. And he was an East Coast sophisticate, he thought, from having made money creating the cigarette rolling machine. So he was a, an entrepreneur. He made money. He was in Venice, Italy, and he thought he would do it here because this marshland wasn't worth much to anybody until he thought of actually reclaiming it by creating the canals. And he and his brother owned, I think they owned up into Ocean Park and all that. Uh, but from the beginning, he thought it was going to go right, and it made a hard left in another direction. But he figured, well, people like it. You know, there were burlesque and... Um, beauty pageants at a time that people didn't wear bathing suits publicly and what they wore did not look much like bathing suits. It looked more like formal attire that was a little bit tighter. And a little, uh, it, I mean, we had dance halls and, and speakeasies during the prohibition and, and tunnels between buildings so they could bring the liquor off the shore and run it across the street from the building it went into in case they were being watched. So it's always been a very dynamic community. But Los Angeles... You know, the United States to the world is a bastion of freedom, supposedly. And clearly not in all cases, but it represents that. And L.A. is, a, is free from the East Coast mentality that settled this country in a lot of ways. And it's also as diverse as any city in this country, as far as I know. And in that way, it's really been able to grow and develop and deal with the problems that are multicultural and all the other problems that come with a diverse community. So it tends to be, it was discounted for a long time by New York and other major cities that thought they had the edge. And the New York Times did an article a year or so ago that said that uh, New Yorkers always want to be number one, and it turns out they are. They're the number one group moving to Los Angeles. <laughs> and it's very hard to deny that we've got extraordinary weather. We've got the capacity of surfing and skiing on the same day and being in the, be in the desert at night and all on the same day. Uh, but the diversity of the city, I think, is really what makes it tick and what's, what brings it to life. And Venice is really a microcosm of L.A. What L.A. is to the United States, the United States is to the world. Venice is to Los Angeles and the rest of the world. And to me, to me, it's sort of the host, the international host. You know, everybody talks about sister cities. All cities are host, are, are sister cities to Venice. Everybody from around the world comes down here to see this. And, and many people come and are sort of shocked at how dirty it's been. We created some friends and I got together and created a business improvement district to start cleaning it up. It's made a big impact. We've taken six or 7,000 bags, 55-gallon bags of trash off the streets in the neighboring surrounding area. When you allow a, an area to degrade, people tend to degrade. You know, they tend to get worse. So I think the brain trust, one of the problems is that there's been so much to do that the people who do it become so engulfed in it, everyone says, God, that's great, you're doing it, and walk away saying, I can't do that. I don't have the time, I don't have the effort, I'm not even going to get it started because there's too much to do. But the fact is, if everybody did a little, there'd be little to do. And waking people up doesn't take much when the problems are so obvious and they're already woken up by them by their own irritability and their own dissatisfaction and sort of discontent over them. So they, they're already living with them 24 hours to a degree. And most of the people I know are very aware of the issues going around their house. And there's almost not a conversation I have where it doesn't come up in the first 10 minutes before we can get past it and go on to other things. So if everybody participated down here and actually took the time to sort of understand what was going on, we have more than enough brain trust in this community to actually solve these problems and be a beacon to solve problems elsewhere. And part of it is just mobilizing people to start to recognize that they can't, the city and governments can't function without the cooperation of their citizens. And the cooperation of the citizens is to actually act responsibly. 
And if we're all acting responsibly, the governments fall apart. It's happened around the world recently more than probably any other time in recent history where governments have consistently just fallen apart because the people said, you know what, no more. I've had enough, that's it. And they did it collectively, and all of a sudden the government's gone in two weeks. You know, these, these supposed authorities are gone. Shakespeare calls it, Katie introduced me to the term, it was cloaked in brief authority. Mm, yeah. right? So they wear all the accoutrement, but in fact it's, it's really us that allows them to do what they do, and it should be us that directs what is done. And our own participation, whether it be through our own family networks, our own friendly networks, our own neighborly networks, really begins, if, if we can have a conversation that brings any hope to someone who thinks it's hopeless and unnecessary to participate, it allows them a chance to start to think about what they can do in a way that they're willing to do, in an amount that they want to do, and start doing it. And it wouldn't take a lot for things to turn. Henry Miller said that the only, the, the biggest problem with humans, that, that all humans need is a change of heart you know, recognizing the problems in the world. Stephen Hawking, the end of his new book, says that he said it's the first time in history where he thinks people are much more preoccupied with themselves inwardly than looking out into the stars and trying to have a bigger view of things. And that bigger view, that narrow view excludes everybody, and the bigger view begins to include everybody because it becomes obvious that whatever's going on, we're all sharing in it. It isn't something happening to me and not to you, except to the degree I want to claim it and demand you, you accept it. And if you don't, you're an asshole and I'm the good guy. You know, you're fucked and I'm, I'm better off because I'm defended. I'm no better off defended at all. I'm actually weaker and less able and crippled by the whole idea because all of a sudden I feel lonely and I'm pretty sure everybody else is responsible for it. So my capacity to function is dysfunctional. It's gone. So allowing people to see those things and opportunities, and that's why I said I think it's a little unfortunate that everybody is so completely opposed to the bus yard. If, if a system could be developed that has a protocol that could actually take people and begin to process them into housing and solutions for their problems, and the problem with homeless isn't housing. That's like saying the problem with people on a bus stop is cars and we should be buying them all cars. They know if they don't have a car to take the bus. They know if they have a car that the bus is a great alternative to traffic. And it's cheap. And it may be more affordable and it may allow them more housing. And we don't take the bus in the city as much as we potentially could. And it's actually an incredible system, especially down here. We have the terminus in Venice of every major bus line. We can get anywhere we want. Yes, it takes longer. But sometimes being in my car takes a lot longer than I anticipate it's going to take. And it's a lot easier to sit in a seat and have somebody else do the driving. And the, the beauty, too, on the buses nowadays is that everybody's on their phone. It used to be like prison. You go in there, everybody's yelling at each other and catcalling and harassing. And now it's silent. Everybody's looking at their phones so you can catch up on reading and articles and all that stuff. Point being that housing, thinking that jumping over all of the other issues involved in getting people to the point that they're on the street is simply housing, is missing the whole point and missing the steps that can be taken. A couple of years ago, Regina Weller, who was down here with her husband Steve, who died recently, and Regina and Steve did a lot of work with homeless on the street. They were ministers and went out and talked to people. And she asked us for $2,500. A bunch of guys got together and we gave her $2,500. Or, yeah, $2,500, and they sent 13 people home from Third Avenue. And she knows, as most people know, that there's a lot that can be done with people if you simply start where you are rather than where you think you need to get. There's no action happening in the future if it isn't started now. And what we can do now is actually communicate with people and see if there isn't an option. I suspect we could develop GoFundMe pages and Facebook pages and things to raise money to get people back to families that they've been away from so long that they're ashamed to talk about their situation and or have broken some had a rift with them or something they feel is unhealable and the people that that one of the conditions of the people we sent home was that we'd be allowed to call their family be allowed to confirm with them that they would accept them if they came back and every one of them was and to the probably surprise of the people on the street who are pretty sure they're never welcome home because they're harboring the memories of what they did and how they got to where they are um, the families were welcome in every, every case that I know of, and everybody got home. We take them to the bus station, put them on, gave them some money, gave them 50 bucks to eat on the way home, and sent them off. That's a simple approach to probably a lot of the people who are on the street. People come to Los Angeles because social media has told them, nobody's <clears throat> going to do anything. You can do whatever you want. You want to drink all day on the street? Drink. You want to do heroin? Do heroin. You want to look at Skid Row. Skid Row's been Skid Row for decades. It's a permissible area where drug dealers operate relatively openly. Not to say there isn't a lot of pressure against them, 
but it's a recognized component of what's going on down there, and it's become that here, too. Yeah, the boardwalk has a lot of the, that component in it, too. It sort of feels like the Wild West down there. It's not really enforced, yeah. and it has the same type of feeling. There's a whole new crew of guys down here and women who have taken on the job of seeing that they know everybody, and they're starting to actually identify. They're not treating them like they're not locals. They see who they are, and they're starting to work in ways that haven't happened before. And it, you can see the difference in what's happening. Basically, the homeless themselves, when we started the business improvement district, we had we were sued immediately. People were hysterical, thinking we were going to taser and shoot people to get rid of them. And the whole point of it was to actually create a collective sufficient enough to begin to take the pressure off so people who really need help could start admitting it, rather than be cowering in a corner, absolutely certain that if anybody approached them, they didn't want anything to do with them. So that was part of it. Within our first week, we had people ask us if we could stay on 20, those safe teams could stay on 24 hours a day. So they said the 2 to 6 a.m. when your gap is, is when we get beaten up and robbed and all that kind of other stuff. So it made it really apparent to us that there's a lot of people down there that need help and probably could get it if anybody had the, if enough of us had the wherewithal to begin communicating with them, we could probably find a way to solve that problem and scoop off a lot of the, the, the slag that's sitting on the top of the, the, the molten metal, you know, before we get down to the harder cases and all that kind of stuff. And I don't, I don't think it's impossible. If it's possible to do what we've done and have something so derelict occur, that would seem impossible to me. It's certainly possible to be better to people and have them get better. Health tends to get better when you don't keep drinking poison or feeding yourself something that's unhealthy. Yeah. You know, that's the nature of things. Yeah, it make, makes a lot of sense. It reminds me of the model that the Midnight Mission has yeah. um, and pulling people off the street and really reaching out to them and giving them the basics of what they might need to take the first steps to making their lives a little bit better, reconnecting them with families, getting them off of any substances that they're on, maybe giving them some health care, even a little bit, just right. so that they can get their faculties back. Well, and they even, I do a meeting down there on Sundays that I call Sunday School, and we talk about, we don't talk about substance use or any of that. We talk about being responsible and starting to actually recognize the responsibility of the people who are there, because they are in a position where they know they've gone about as far down as they can possibly get, because they're in a place that is basically catering to people who have gone down as far as they can possibly get. And they're seeing those guys all around them and starting to say, oh, there go, there, not, not for the grace of God, there go I, there go I. Forget about God saving some and not saving others, but really recognizing, oh, I got my, I earned my place here. But in their courtyard, they have a group of people out front where they allow to be in that courtyard, high, on heroin, drunk, whatever. They just can't use it in there. So the rule is, you can come in here for safety and we'll lock the gates at night. You can go out to the street and drink and use. But when you're in here, you can't do that. So it's a single step away from the, this seemingly free-for-all that is not free for anybody, ultimately. Yeah. And sort of turning that conversation around. To get in the front doors, you need to be clean, you need to be sober. And overlooking that element is overlooking 70% of the problem that's out there, as far as I'm concerned. People say, well, it's a mental problem. Like, yes, addiction is a mental problem. The problem with addiction is not physical, it's not, those are all symptoms of an underlying disease. The disease is mental. If you treat the, if you give people the opportunity to start to step away from the compulsions, you give them an opportunity to start to deal with the obsession. And the thinking is the problem. And if they don't have that freedom and they don't have a bed and they don't have a little bit of relief, they're not going to get to it because they're going to be under the stress that created it to begin with. Well, I, I really appreciate your efforts. And uh, there's a very clear, concise thought that has gone behind what you do and the, and the ways in which you are active. Um, before we get out of here, I know we're coming up on an hour. Um, if there's one or two things that you could recommend to those who have something to give or the willingness to do something, what would be the maybe one or two or first steps that you could take as a member of this community besides just reaching out and saying hi to people, <clears throat> which I think is a big step, but what more would you think we could do? Well, in that approach of saying hello, we're, we've begun to develop a program with SHARE, which is Self-Help and Recovery Exchange in Culver City that basically caters to people. They have meetings for people that might not fall under the umbrellas of most meetings, like for Asians. Asians tend to pray differently than we do, so they tend not to participate in sober collective meetings like many people would. Um, Persians apparently have their own way of, of uh, 
praying their own their own ideas about spirituality so they give worship, them, they give yeah. them a, a chance to be together and have their own collective where they can get better uh, but more than that they've developed 60 tools of the trade essentially of how to be with people and they teach peer counselors when people get into housing for instance if you just let them sit in housing they'll do drugs they'll drink they'll do all sorts of things that don't help them but if you get them into housing with the idea that you're going to help them get better to begin to take back the direction of their life you begin to wake them up talk to them about what they'd like to do give them ideas how to do it get their driver's license social security get all that stuff in order so they can start functioning and they will function if you create the path they will follow it and get better people want to have some sense of place um, so share is developing and has developed through jason who's their i think he's their executive director um, a program that we want to start here in Venice and we're waiting for the potential of a, a, a building that we can use on a regular basis to begin to actually educate people on how they can function with people who are harder cases. How do you approach somebody who's on the street who may not be interested in having you interested in them? And their first thing that I like to tell people because it's so powerful uh, and when I heard it I went with Katie and we did a two-hour um, presentation. I think we did 20 or 30 of the the um, concepts that they've developed, which are incredibly powerful to use in family dynamics, in married dynamics, with kids, with friends. Anybody in the world is better being better equipped to deal with other people responsibly rather than sort of like randomly, like so often happens. But their first one is you never ask somebody on the street if they have a drug or alcohol problem, but you ask them if they know anybody that does. And every one of them immediately points to somebody in their vicinity who's worse than they are, so they become helpful, they become participants, they become service-oriented because now they're being considerate. They immediately have a relationship with you because they're not shutting the door and saying, no, fuck off, get out of my face, I don't want to talk to you. All of a sudden you've got a relationship and you can go help that other person too and it sort of opens the door. So there's a lot of tools that haven't been employed that if employed I think would really empower people's appreciation for the small part they can do and the huge impact they can make because collectively we're designed to work together. We're not designed to work in quiet little individual, you know, me against them kind of situations. We're really all one species, undivided. We, we function on almost identical basis between all of the variations of our form and exterior cover. Uh, we're almost all the same. People want to be cared for and they want to care for others. That's my, my suspicion of what our actual nature is. People aren't doing that, suffer. They hurt, they're depressed. They don't know better. They think they don't know better. They do the wrong thing in the name of thinking they're going to escape. And they end up just nailing that coffin deeper and deeper and deeper. Suicide's at an all-time high. It's not a surprise. It's not a surprise. Well, Jack, I know that we're uh, kind of run out of time here. I just, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate your, just how much you care about the community and the, the fact that you've been around here for so long and that you've made real efforts in trying to better the community as a whole and, and the person that you are. I just want to tell you how much I appreciate you and, and taking the time to speak with us is just, I think, extremely valuable. So I just want to say thanks and uh, hopefully we can do it again. Well, I appreciate it and I'll tell you it's completely selfish because the benefits are so great that I have learned to really appreciate that that's, the, that's how we're designed to be rather than making believe that somehow or another it's me against the world and I'm going to conquer it really working with it that really provides the greatest benefit because the benefits become realized and seen very quickly because people light up and you see it come back in their eyes and it's incredibly rewarding. I've never done anything that's been, that, I've, that I've appreciated more than to participate in other people's lives and give it away. So it's totally selfish. Well, that's the <laughs> lesson to learn. it's a good form of self selfishness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks again, Jack, and uh, we'll, we'll talk again soon. Thanks. Thanks. I so appreciate Jack for taking the time to speak with us today. It was truly an honor, and I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you have any thoughts about any of the issues that we touched on, please do not hesitate to shoot me an email at ron at venicevoice.com, and we'll continue the discussion. I have a feeling that these issues will be with us for a while, so I'd love to hear any thoughts that you may have. And again, if you'd like to be interviewed, or if you want to pitch a product, or if you have any feedback about the show at all, don't hesitate to reach out to me on any of your favorite socials. I'd love to hear from you. Stay tuned for next week's episode when I will feature another interesting human being who has ties with this little gem of a neighborhood called Venice, California. Until then, much love and we'll see you next time.